Well, good morning, and uh, we are back in the book of Mark after a break over the holidays and the 1st of January for our 21 days of prayer and fasting. So I'd like to invite you to turn to Mark chapter 3, and we're going to be looking at the verses 7 to 12. You know, when we have gone through the study of Mark, we ask this question, because Mark is introducing us to Jesus. I mean, this is the most bizarre, unbelievable thing anyone has ever talked about, and that is the fact that God, the eternal, transcendent, all-powerful, all-knowing, always-present God, became a man, and his name was Jesus. And he lived, and he worked, and he healed, and he helped, and, and Mark, in his 16 chapters worth of a gospel, is introducing us to this idea that like, hey, God really came. He was a man. His name was Jesus. He came from Galilee. He was born of a virgin. I mean, it's, it's an amazing story. So Mark is introducing us to Jesus. And as we go through this, we're asking this question. So who is this man, Jesus? What did he do? What does he represent? What do we hope for in Jesus? Well, Jesus is the king. And his kingdom has characteristics And one of the characteristics of his kingdom that we're going to look at today is that the kingdom of Jesus is a kingdom of hope. It's a kingdom of change and goodness and renewal and healing. Hope is so powerful. In 1799, the armies of Napoleon and his army surrounded a little town of Feldskirk in Austria. Now, the leaders of the city hastily called for a meeting. They had no power to resist Napoleon's mighty army. I mean, they, they had no options. What would they do? What could they do? And so they called together this meeting, and in the middle of the discussion, the leader of the church says this, well, today, brothers, it's Easter This is the day of our king's resurrection. We don't know what this day is going to hold, but I think that we should at least celebrate the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. So let's just ring the bells of the church. And so they begin to ring the bells of the church, and the city city, uh, citizens came, and they, they went to the church, and amazingly what happened was the French in the countryside heard this early morning ringing of the bells, and they were confused. Why were they celebrating? And the bells kept ringing and ringing and ringing, and they concluded, well, I guess what happened was, in the middle of the night, the Austrian army has come to their rescue, and so the French immediately began to retreat, and before the bells stopped ringing, all of the Frenchmen had left the area, and the city had been saved. This is a story of hope. This is why Jesus came. He came to bring hope. Hopelessness is one of the most awful places to live. Jesus comes and he invades the hopeless lives of people with a hope. And one of the things that Jesus does is he he makes it known that in his kingdom, one of the primary things that's going to go on is that the sick will be healed. 
Wow. That, that's what these verses are all about here. In chapter 3, Jesus has gone into the synagogue and the Pharisees and the religious leaders, Jared talked about this last week, they came together and they were trying to entrap Jesus. They, they knew that Jesus was predisposed to help people who were hurting, to heal the sick. And so they strategically brought a man into the synagogue who had a withered hand and then they put him in front of Jesus. Now notice their heart's motive. Their, their heart's motive was not to help this guy. They didn't even know this guy's name, I don't think. They didn't care about him. They were trying to entrap Jesus because they knew he was predisposed to do good and to help and to heal. And Jesus, Jesus was angry. In verse five of chapter three, and when he had looked around at them, he, he, looked, he had looked around at them with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts. He said to the man, stretch out your hand, and he stretched it out, and his hand was restored uh, as whole as the other. Then the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. Jesus was angry because these people didn't care about people. Jesus cared about people. Jesus was gonna bring hope and healing to people. These men were manipulating circumstances to accuse Jesus. And when Jesus did the awful thing of healing a man on the Sabbath, which by the way was not breaking any command of God, it was the, ex, ex, the, the ancillary commands of the disciples that you know they said this was a violation and, and Jesus knew that, that the Sabbath had been made for man for his refreshing as a moment for them to re, be reminded that there is a good God in heaven who is there to help them. But it had been so distorted and the sick response of the Pharisees was this, they were angry that Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath in the synagogue, but then as soon as he did, they were, they were so mad that they went and they consulted and plotted with the Herodians. The Herodians, by the way, were not their natural alliance people. I mean, th these Herodians were against everything they wanted, but they had a common enemy in Jesus now. And what did they do? They plotted to destroy him. How absurd is that? Don't you dare heal a man on the Sabbath, but now we're gonna break some law. We're gonna go murder Jesus. I mean, that's crazy. Jesus, after this encounter, he leaves the synagogue and he and his disciples get away from everybody. And they go down to the Sea of Galilee. They were probably looking for a moment to recoup. Have you ever been in a real intense argument in your life? Anybody like that? Am I the only one? Have you ever been the intense arguer? And then you look back and think, man, what, what in the world was I thinking? But whether you're, you're the one who's intense or other people are, those moments are exhausting. And Jesus and the, and the disciples, they were exhausted by the encounter. So they tried to get away so they could recoup. They can refresh themselves. And they go down by the Sea of Galilee. And then this is what happens in verse 7. But Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. 
And a great multitude from Galilee followed him. And from Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and beyond the Jordan and those from Tyre and Sidon, a great multitude, when they heard how many things he was doing, came to him. So he told his disciples that a small boat should get, be kept ready for him because of the multitude, lest they should crush him. So this, Jesus is concerned. Man, I, I may be crushed by this crowd. For he healed so many, uh, so that as many as had afflictions pressed about him to touch him, and the unclean spirits, whenever they saw him, fell down before him and cried out, saying, you are the son of God. But he sternly warned them that they should not make him known. So here's what's going on is Jesus' reputation of a man who has power to heal the sick had gone far and wide. In this crowd, people had traveled over 100 miles. Now, they didn't get in their nice cars. These were hard miles to travel. But do you know what? When someone is sick, we feel a sense of desperation. We'll go anywhere and do anything if only we can make sure that our loved ones would be okay. And I, I remember as a father, I, there were a couple times when my children were so sick. One particular time was Robert woke up one day and he couldn't open his eyes because any type of light that came into his eyes was so extremely painful. He stayed in the basement with the lights out in complete darkness with his head covered with a pillow. And I, I remember in the middle of the night, he, he came upstairs, it was so dark. He says, Dad, I, I just can't even open my eyes. Any light hurts so very bad. He says, can, can we go outside? Because it's dark out there now. So he walked outside and he gently opened his eyes, but any light hurt him. We took him to the doctor. I remember that night when he went back down to his room, I went into the living room and I just knelt down all by myself and I cried out as a desperate father and I said, God, please, please do not let my son go blind. Would you please heal him? I still remember the desperate feeling because this is my son. We went to the doctor with the eye exam where they shine a lie in your eyes about killed him. And the doctor said, well, I'd, I, th I think it's an autoimmune response here. I'm going to give you some medicine. I'm going to take this medicine for five or six days in, in massive doses, honestly, of this medicine. And we just hope that this helps because I don't know what else to do. I'm back up in the living room at night on my knees, desperately begging God to intervene. And then in a couple days, Robert comes upstairs and he says, I can, I can open my eyes again. Man, I just love a doctor who has studied. These doctors paid dearly for the, the knowledge and the training and the they are agents of God's healing, in my opinion. And I'm so grateful. But you know, in the day of Jesus, when someone got sick, 
they were really, weren't really sure what was going on. I mean, I think we forget what a blessed day that we live in. Because when we get sick, we have physicians and specialists around us who we can go to and say, here's what's going on, can you help me? And, and our doctors, I mean, they're well-trained and they, they have a bunch of diagnostic tests available to them. I mean, you think about what a doctor learns out of the blood test. He, he, he can see if you have an infection. He, he can evaluate what is the chemical composition of your blood, what, what chemicals are within the norms and what does he need to supplement. And oh, it, it's, it's amazing. We can get x-rays and they can see inside, but back in the day, they didn't have it. When someone got sick, everybody got scared. I, I, I was so curious. What was it like to live in the day of Jesus? Well, <clears throat> did you know that uh, the average life expectancy in Jesus' day was 35? Wow. Now, the reason it was 35 is because <clears throat> infant mortality was so high that the you know, life expectancy is an average. Um, if you survived the first year of your life and you actually made it into adult years, then life expectancy would typically be 50, 50 plus. But sickness was a deal. You know... Um, It was Ignaz Semmelweis, a 19th century, 19th century Hungarian doctor who was also known as the pioneer of hand washing. He discovered the wonders of the now basic hygienic practice uh, as a way to stop the spread of infection in 1847. Now, if, if you think about the history of mankind, 1847 was just like yesterday. You know what I'm saying? I mean, Jesus was 1847 years before this. Um, but he, he did an experiment, experiment in a maternity ward in Vienna and discovered that by washing hands before going to the next patient, fewer women got very sick and fewer died. And you and I take for granted. I mean... You, you walk around this building, we've got hand sanitizer stuff available at just a few steps away. We've got running water and soap in the bathroom because, you know, but back then, they didn't even realize that was the thing. German pathologist Robert Koch discovered the bacterium behind tuberculosis in 1882. He, in, he included a short guide for linking microorganisms to the diseases they cause. It was a windfall for germ theory, the modern understanding of pathogens um, that make us sick. I mean, this is in 1882. Uh, Alexander Fleming, a young Scottish researcher, was working on an idea to try to find a cure for bacterial infections. You know what bacterial infections cause? Have you ever heard of this thing called pneumonia? Did you know that many people died of pneumonia? It's still a problem. And they, they had no way to solve that kind of a bacterial infection. But then Alexander Fleming, I mean, he, he 
in the early 1900s with the help of Flory and Chan brought this wonder drug to market who, that has saved thousands of people's lives. It is antibiotics. So it's no wonder that when all of a sudden there is this man had the, had the power to heal, the people came from all over. You know, I honestly have been struggling to figure out what to say about this passage, okay? And the reason is this, because most of the time the healings that took place, they were all very personal in Jesus' ministry. You know, have you ever seen the, the character Thor? You haven't seen him, but have you seen it on TV or in a okay. You know, he has like this big mallet and he just, bam, and it shakes the whole world, right? Now, that was not the way that Jesus healed. Jesus healed the people that came to him. They were personal encounters and requests from people. But then, um, I got to thinking, why does Mark depart from his regular narrative of uh, introducing the person, and and he, he gives this passage? Um, it's it's this passage that just pretty much lumps together the fact that Jesus withdrew with the disciples. These sick people came, and Jesus healed them. He even asked for a small boat because of the crush of the crowd and the potential for his own personal safety to be compromised. Why? Because you see, the king had come. And we're looking for leaders to follow whose agenda gives us hope. And one of the primary characteristics of the kingdom of God it is in the heart of God to put away sickness. It is even in the heart of God to conquer death. It was a down payment for what eventually would happen in the end of all time. Now, I, I want to just remind you, this whole idea of healing is a complicated topic do you know that every person in Mark chapter 3 that was healed by Jesus eventually got sick of something and died? I mean, that's sort of the way of life. I have something really sad to tell you all. Unless Jesus returns today, we will all someday die. Aren't you glad you came to church? But Jesus comes and he opens a window into his kingdom and he says, I want you to know in my kingdom death doesn't win and sickness and demonic oppression is not allowed to stay. And that's why somebody go ring the bells. It's Easter and hope prevails in the worst of circumstances. In John chapter 11, um, Jesus hears about his friend Lazarus, 
Lazarus and his two sisters, Mary and Martha, were dear friends of Jesus. And Lazarus got sick, and they sent word to Jesus, who was far away, and he was, he was preaching and ministering, and they said, Jesus, would you please come immediately because Lazarus, our brother, is sick. And Jesus wasn't in a hurry to go. In fact, he delayed for two days, and then when he finally did go, <clears throat> Lazarus had already been dead for two days. He got there, and Lazarus was now in the tomb four days, and it's just like, what in the world's going on here, Jesus? And in John eleven twenty one, 21, now Martha said to Jesus, Martha's the sister, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask God, God will give you. So she still has hope that he has power to do something. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again on the resurrection at the last day. And then Jesus says, no, wait a second here. I, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who came into the world. And I see your agenda includes resurrection. Life is short. Death is certain, and the grave is not the end if you're a follower of Jesus. The idea of a, of a God who became man, who lived and taught, and he worked, and then he was killed, and he rose again the third day, that's the game changer. In the meantime, we can call on Jesus and ask for him to help us when we are sick. Why? because one of the, the, the characteristics of the kingdom of Jesus is he loves to heal. I know that when I'm sick, I run to God and ask for healing. Do you do that? Now the first surgery I ever had was about five years ago and it was open heart surgery that included a heart attack and six bypasses and I have, I'm still a little freaked out from that, honestly. My doctor told me I needed a little bit of an abdominal surgery and he says it wouldn't be nearly as difficult as open heart surgery. And I'm like, well, thank the Lord for that because that's what, that's what I don't want to have to do again. Lord, help me. But still, I'm... I, Two weeks ago, three weeks ago when I preached, I left here, I went down to my seat and I thought, well, I don't know what's gonna happen because I know bad stuff can happen and complications occur and unexpected events can happen. I do a lot of visiting in the hospital. I've seen a lot of stuff. Uh, you know what? The reality of sickness and unexpected consequences freaks me out, I'm telling you. Are you with me? I left the pulpit and I says, well, Lord, who knows? That might have been the last sermon I ever preached. The idea of being intubated scares me. The idea of having anesthesia, I'm just a wimp. Can you all just know that? And so I remember going into the surgery center and I'm, I'm, I'm more nervous than I'm hoping people can see. I'm kind of like this crowd. The doors open, I take my first few steps into the 
lobby area and I look up and I see two of my friends, Gary Wilson and Jim Wade. I said, hey, Pastor, we, hey, we decided we would come and pray for you before you go inside. Oh, my goodness. I sure needed that. <clears throat> I felt their concern and their love, and I was buoyed in my hope because they had come to pray. That's what we need to be doing for each other all the time. We need that. This idea of being able to communicate with God and go to him with our every need goes all the way back to the creation of man when God formed Adam out of the dust of the ground and he breathed into him the breath of life and Adam awoke in the presence of God because God wanted to have a conversation with him. And he never stops wanting to have a conversation with you. If you make God just the SOS prayer recipient, you miss out on the whole point. He's gracious to help, but he'd love to hear from us every day. Actually, we can walk with God. There's this little boy who went to church and they were talking about how the story I just mentioned, how that man was created out of the dust. And then they said, well, you know, actually it's you, you come from dust and you end up dust. Okay, there we go. That's a sweet thought. This little boy heard that and um, he woke up one morning. He looked underneath his bed and he immediately jumped up and went down to find his mom, and he said, Mom, I just looked under my bed, and I can't tell if that person is coming or going. One of the great powers of life is prayer. And the reason we can pray and ask God to help us is because when the king came, He healed people. In the 90s, I had a friend who had gone to Cambodia. This was right after the days of Pol Pot. And if you don't know much about the regime of Pol Pot, Pol Pot had decided he was going to create a paradise for the proletariat. And so in the process of transforming that nation, he, he ended up killing people all the people who owned businesses, all the people who were educated, <clears throat> people who were accountants, um, industrialists, and physicians. Because his idea, well, we'll wipe out anybody that has any ties to an upper class, and then all we'll be left with will be the, the peasants, and we will create the paradise of the proletariat. <clears throat> but what he forgot to take into account was that when he eliminated all the people that were educated and knew how to do stuff, including the physicians. He tore out the human infrastructure necessary for a society to work. 
And my friend said in his, in his visit there, as he interacted with people, he began to realize that the physicians that were active in Phnom Penh at that time had had about two or three years worth of medical training. And it wasn't uncommon that when they got in the middle of a surgery and they didn't know what to do, they would just like instruct for this person to be taken to a hospital bed to die because they didn't know what else to do. I don't want to live in that kingdom, do you? But our king, our king says, when you hurt, I care. When you need help, I want to help you. Lastly, this Jesus, this king, he was the king of eternity. And because I, I want to just tell you this, that there are certain experiences and circumstances in life that can only be processed with hope if we keep our eye on eternity. When I think about the fact that my mom and dad are both gone, it makes me sad. But when I think about the fact that they are with the Lord in eternity, it makes me glad. And when I am lonely for them, I can look forward and know, oh, that day is coming when we will be reunited. 1 Corinthians 15, 54 to 56. So when this corruptible has put on the incorruption and the mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying, that is written. Here's the saying. Death is swallowed up in victory. Do you hear that? Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, Hades, where is your victory? When Paul came to the end of his ministry, he wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, 6 to 8. This is what, this is what Paul, Paul is expecting. He's going to die. And he did die. But this is what he had to say when he confronted the idea of his own death at the hands of the Roman government. He says, for I am ready already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. That's you and me. And Paul says, oh, there's bad stuff that happens and but eternity puts it all in perspective when Jesus was on the cross the thief on the cross said to him Lord will you remember me when you come into your kingdom and what did Jesus say hey, today you will be with me in paradise before he left his disciples in John 14 he says let not your heart be troubled you believe in God, believe also in me, in my Father's house. He's talking about eternity here. There are many mansions, and if it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And so this whole concept of a God who transcends death into a res through a resurrection and invites us into his eternity, th this is where we have hope Ring those bells again. 
Revelation 21. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. There also was no more sea than I, John, saw the holy city, new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Do you see what's going on here? He is not tweaking our existence. He is making it new. He's putting it back the way it was supposed to be, and that's when Jesus came. He opens a window and he says, hey, I'm the king. The kingdom of heaven is here. And because the kingdom of heaven includes healing and resurrection, a place where pain and sorrow and loss are forever put away. I'm making all things new. You know, um, I love the idea of eternity because there are some things in my life that aren't going to be fixed here. Yeah. When my son James was born with Down syndrome, I was scared so bad. My heart grieved because now my son, he would have to struggle through whatever that struggle was gonna look like and nobody could tell me and I didn't know for sure and it just hurt. And I remember being in circles of other people with special needs children who were angry and bitter and, 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 and their, their sentiment, some of them was, well, if there is a God, why did he let this happen to my child as if this is the final statement about their child and yet me, I'm able to look past this world and I can say, I will I will get into eternity. And on that day, James and I will sit down and we will have all of the conversations we can't have here yet because we talk here and he tries to share his heart, his dreams, his hopes, and his desires. And he, he gets to a word or a thought and he, he can't get it out and it's not clear. And I'm like, well, James, it's, what does that mean? That means this? No. And, and well, I'm trying hard to understand, James. I would you just keep trying? What, what does that mean? What is that word? And then he'll go, ah. And those moments hurt. Because I love that guy. And I want to hear what he has to say. But we can't always connect. And in those moments, I just have to step back. I have to not just be earthbound, I have to have faith and I have to have a focus of eternity. And the day is coming when I will sit with that boy and he will freely tell me everything that's on his heart. And in eternity, that boy's gonna do something, I promise you. He's a strong leader, full of visions and dreams, and I can't wait to see. James didn't get shortchanged by God. 
because this life is just temporary. And this king that I read about in Mark is a king who makes everything right. He is the resurrected Lord. It's gonna be okay. I wanna jump in line and follow this king because no other person in the history of mankind has this much power and this good of an agenda. I gladly bow before this king. You know, this week, I called a couple in our church because they had a baby and uh, it wasn't it wasn't a it wasn't a it, I mean it was positive the baby is there and but the doctors told them hey this is what we see and this is what we can expect and and they won't be here long and that just hurts I said to the father, so how are you doing? This is what he said to me. Well, pastor, um, after you pray with us, uh, my wife and I are gonna go down. We're gonna hold our little boy. And then we're just gonna plan on running with him throughout all of eternity. Because this king has come. He will redeem all things for those who will follow him. I'm just telling you, nobody else can help us like Jesus. Would you bow your heads?